Welcome everyone to this very special online event. My name is Minoush Shafiq and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. This year, LSE celebrates Black History Month and the people who helped shape not only the black community, but really the entire world. Our theme for this year, Black 365, recognizes that we must think beyond Black History Month to th and think about these issues every day to achieve the world that we really want. In that spirit, I'm delighted to welcome Otega Uwagba to LSE today at what is our flagship event for Black History Month. And this is in collaboration with our students union here at the school. LSE is exhibiting a wonderful showcase of events this month, and it's a pleasure to host this conversation with Otega as part of that series. Otega is a best-selling author and cultural journalist who's written three books, the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, A Toolkit for Working Women in 2017, the short essay, Whites on Race and Other Falsehoods, published in 2020, and her most recent book, the Sunday Times bestseller, We Need to Talk About Money, a part memoir, part cultural commentary, published just this last July. In 2018, she was selected for the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. She graduated from Oxford with a degree in politics, philosophy, and economics, although I feel like she would have, you know, been more, more in spirit at the LSE. But anyway, we can talk about that too. <laughs> we'll begin with a conversation between myself and Otega, and as usual, there'll be a chance for audience questions. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to LSE Embrace, our Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic Staff Network, and they will uh, share those with me, and, we'll, and I'll try and get to as many of them as I can. Please let us know your name and affiliation, and we're always keen to hear from students, alumni, and incoming students, so please let us know if that applies to you. For those using Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Black History Month. And this event is being recorded and will hopefully be made as available as a podcast for later listening. So now, though, let me start by asking Otega a few questions. And I'm going to start with a question about your, your sort of your story, your journey. Tell us a little bit more about what are the big influences and inspirations that have shaped you and changed you over time? Sure. Um, and first of all, I just want to say thank you for that introduction. <laughs> it, was, it was really lovely. Um, my big influence is inspiration. I mean, my background is that I started my career working in advertising. So that's what I did after university. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I'd always wanted to go into journalism and be a writer, but for various reasons decided on advertising as sort of a stable career path. And then after about five years or so, decided to kind of make the jump and, and really pursue journalism writing seriously. Um, and I think that probably, you know, if you ask my parents, they'll kind of say, oh, you're always destined to be a writer. But the truth is I read a lot as a kid. I still read a lot now, but I spent a lot of time in libraries. I read voraciously. And I'd say that many of my key influences and inspirations are writers, you know, and particularly writers who I think are great storytellers. So writers like Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, obviously, who in both her fiction and her nonfiction, I think, just has just the most compelling storytelling and capabilities um and more recently i've kind of developed an interest in writing for tv i think for me it's just about the kind of trans transportive power of a good story when you really get lost in something get lost in a world that somebody else has created i'm really interested in being able to do that myself um and aside from that i mean obviously i studied ppe i've always been a very political person um I had quite a sort of strong sense of, you know, I guess, justice um, from a young age. And I think I sort of have to credit my dad a lot for that. Um, and I think that also kind of informs my work. My dad is very politically engaged and I think has, you know, a strong sense of um, morality and kind of social right and wrong. And I, you know, I remember things like from a really young age, I remember walking home from school once and him taking the time to explain to me why racism is wrong, but not just against black people, but also about informing me about the sorts of slurs that I might hear used against other minorities, why they were wrong, why I shouldn't say them, why they were offensive and kind of explaining the meaning of that. And it's something that I have really remembered ever since. So I think that was kind of inbuilt in me from quite a young age. Um, but at some point, 
I decided that I didn't necessarily want to work in politics directly, <laughs> personally myself, but um, I really strongly believe that there are other ways of making social change, whether that's through culture and writing. I think it's really important to sort of capture people's um, hearts and minds. Okay, well, thank you. So let's talk about current politics. Following the murder of George Floyd, we've seen an explosion of activism concerning racial equality worldwide. Where do you feel that movement is and in what ways has it succeeded and in what ways has it failed? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, it's something that I kind of addressed in, in my essay, Whites on Race and Other Falsehoods. I was really, I guess, motivated to write that. It was the ideas in there about race and racism and whiteness were things that I've been thinking about and making notes on for a couple of years. But after George Floyd was killed last, last summer, I just really felt like now was the time to kind of put those ideas out there. Um, it's been about 18 months since George Floyd was killed. And I think on the kind of positive side, um, I'd say public understanding of racism is much higher than it was prior to 2020. There are certain conversations that I am having now, both, you know, with other people of colour, but also with white people, certain conversations that I'm seeing play out in the public sphere that I could not have had before 2020. And I can't have imagined taking place um, and I think that's really important I, I think that's definitely a sign of progress um, I think for me the issue is and this is something that I talk about um, in the essay is that that doesn't necessarily always translate to action um, and the kind of concept of allyship which is something that I've long been aware of and been thinking about but really kind of gained traction last summer it's really difficult work it's hard and ongoing and I fear that a lot of the conversations that are being had stop at just that, that conversation. So there isn't actually any kind of practical measures. There aren't any practical measures being put into place. Sometimes a lot of that activity kind of lives on social media or within corporate statements. And, you know, something I talk about in whites is that white people are going to have to give up and, and sacrifice and lose many of the privileges and power that they've been accustomed to enjoying um, for centuries. And that's not a particularly appealing prospect, you know, it's a, it's a really hard sell. Mm -hmm. um, and so I am pleased the conversations, that the conversations I talk about have been had. And I think that has definitely made my life easier in some senses that I can kind of just be a bit more honest in, in certain situations and certain circumstances. Um, but 18 months is probably too short a period of time to kind of really evaluate what concrete changes have been made. And it's something that we'll probably have to look back at in five, 10, 15, 20 years time to really properly evaluate. Mm -hmm. I think it was Cho and Lai who, when asked about the French, the impact of the French Revolution, said it's too early to tell. And it's <laughs> Exactly. Still a bit too early to tell, but but um, let me turn to the special issues around Black women. And you often are in places and contexts where Black women are greatly underrepresented. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the importance of representation per se, and what organizations need to do to change the culture to achieve meaningful representation? Mm -hmm. And how important is representation per se? And what more needs to happen beyond having more people present in across across society? Um, representation is a concept that I kind of have mixed feelings about. I think it's certainly true that on the one hand, representation is important. You know, there's that quote: "You can't you can't be what you can't see." Um, mm. And you know, for instance, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine a couple of months ago, where and she was telling me so her son's quite young; he's about ten years old. And he's recently started pursuing acting and theatre and, and, and film and, and he really enjoys it. And, you know, they watch films and, you know, TV programmes together. And she said that he has commented on the diversity, probably not so many words, but commented on diversity, you know, in the programmes that they watch that are made, you know, in the past couple of years or in, in the past mm -hmm. year or so. And he's really noticed the difference between those sorts of films and, and, and TV shows and the things that they watch that I... I guess I call slightly more vintage to things that were made, you know, a couple of decades ago, they watched together. And, you know, part of that, the effect of that kind of on-screen representation is that for him, he really sees acting as something that he can pursue. It doesn't seem particularly outlandish to him. And he sees people that look like him. He's, 
he's a young black boy who, who looked like him on screen all the time. And so it doesn't feel particularly um, unattainable. However, I, I think the older that I get, representation is something that I kind of used to get really fired up about when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, but the older I get, the less enamoured I become with the concept of representation. I think having been in and moved through various spaces, whether in advertising or in you know, mm. university or in, in, in publishing, even now it's, it's not particularly a diverse space, having been in a lot of those spaces and observed that sometimes or often they kind of have token black representation, whether it's on the masthead or on board seats. Um, and that doesn't necessarily translate into making any kind of meaningful change for people who are further down the hierarchy. And often a lot of these um, kind of diversity representation drives, I feel like they tend to focus on those who already have a lot of existing social and economic capital, even, even as, you know, they're people of colour. So often they'll focus on an Oxbridge-educated private school alumni, which, which is my story, by the way, um, to demonstrate they're representative, but they don't necessarily look at, you know, how class plays into that. It's not a particularly nuanced um, effort that I, that I see taking place. Um, in terms of what organisations and institutions could and should do better, I am personally very pro positive discrimination and quotas generally. I think they tend to be quite a controversial topic and you kind of get various kind of right-wing conservative types talking about the fact that, you know, you should hire the best person for the job. But then you look at the fact that, you know, all these kind of elite uh, professions and, and, you know, kind of senior levels tend to be dominated by white men. And you kind of have to bounce question back and say, do you believe that white men are just inherently more capable than everyone else? Or do you think that actually they've been enjoying unfair advantages and privileges for decades and centuries that have now made things so uneven that we now need to do something to redress the balance. So for me, I think there needs to be more kind of positive discrimination and quotas, but it's something that, especially within bigger institutions, I can imagine it's quite hard to actually push through. There's often a lot of resistance to those, those sorts of measures. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're quite open in your writing about the fact that the discussions on race are intended to provoke discomfort. So what's wrong with the current public discourse about race and requires some uncomfortable challenge? What is, uh, has, have we got better at talking about race? Is it, is the discomfort still necessary? Um, I had an interesting conversation with a colleague here at LSE the other day, we were talking about, she said, she said, we're a university, not a sofa i.e. a sofa where you feel comfortable. <laughs> you know, you want, you want a little bit of discomfort and challenge for people to really think hard about things. So, so talk to us a little bit about race and discomfort and uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, I, I really like that quote. And I think I very deliberately aim to kind of, as you say, provoke discomfort and challenge people, especially white people in, in my writing. One of the reasons that I chose to publish white as an essay and something that was printed initially when I first wanted to write about the subject, I thought about and was intending to pitch it to various digital media platforms. You know, I'm also a journalist and, and I thought about writing it for one of those. But first of all, I realized that the word count I'd be given of, you know, 1500, 2000 words wouldn't be sufficient for me to say everything that I wanted to say. But also often when you're writing for those sorts of spaces, there is a pressure to kind of tie things up neatly with a bow and to kind of have like a really kind of obvious takeaway and, and, and to kind of find the, to balance things out with, you know, a bit of sugar, if, if, if I can kind of use that analogy and, and to, to make things a bit more palatable. And I, I foresaw that and I knew that, that absolutely wasn't what I wanted to do. Whereas the relationship that I have with my publisher and my editor, I knew that they'd be very kind of low intervention in allowing me to say what I truly wanted to say. Um, I, I mean, as I kind of said, earlier I think something that has changed massively in the past five or six years um, and I, I use that time frame because I'm thinking about when I was last in formal employment and the sorts of things that were acceptable uh, when I was working in advertising that I, I, I don't think are you know understood to be acceptable now I think the understanding of what isn't and isn't acceptable what is problematic you know just the kind of expansion of understanding of what racism actually is has really changed over the past couple of years, especially so last year, but I think it's been kind of mm. gradual change. And that is a really good thing. Um, I think it makes it easier to push back on 
certain behaviors and incidents, you know, as a person of color or as a black person, if you're able, if you're not having to do the work of explaining to someone first why it's offensive that they said what they said, if the kind of general understanding has has reached a higher level. Um, so I think that's really good. I think, again, kind of just going back to what I said earlier, is that a lot of, a lot of the kind of initiatives I've seen tend to be limited to things that are easier to do. So social media or corporate statements about diversity or even kind of brand campaigns. I saw something earlier today, actually, which was that Google have uh, put out a brand campaign that's essentially a very kind of pandering version of what allyship is. And it's very palatable. It's very sanitized. And I found it quite abhorrent, to be honest. Um, and it's almost become kind of like a marketing tool for a lot of companies, um, often companies that are have transgressed and continue to transgress against their employees of colour in various ways. Um, so I think there's been a lot of conversation, but there hasn't been very much follow through. And that is kind of what I see as the, you know, the, the big obstacle in terms of um, discourse around race at the moment is that, OK, we understand or most people understand what needs to be done, what's going wrong. But it's, you know, it's often maybe it's expensive to implement these things. It's expensive to hire a diversity consultant to come in and really kind of shape up your company. And it also leaves people feeling exposed. Something that I find really interesting is that while, you know, for the past couple of years, it's been mandatory for companies that have employees of more than 250 people to release their gender pay gap stats. That isn't yet the case with ethnicity pay gaps. And I think in a way it's because people and companies institutions and and CEOs feel slightly more comfortable admitting to the kind of sexism and and gender discrimination or you know feminism has made it so that that kind of fight for equality is a little bit sexier it's a bit more palatable but to admit to the fact that you are systematically underpaying employees because of their skin color people still very embarrassed to do that Mm -hmm. and so they're keeping those you know stats very close to their chest um so I, I, I think there is, um, I think there needs to be more kind of honest conversations and much more um, kind of robust action towards actually solving some of these some of these issues. Mm-hmm. It's certainly true in, in all the organisations I've worked with. It's been much easier to make progress on gender and LGBTQ plus issues than yeah. it has been on race. I think that's yeah. true. In people, people feel more comfortable for, for whatever reason. They feel more comfortable um acknowledging that they haven't got it right when it comes to women or lgbtq uh, people but they feel very uncomfortable um and feel very exposed talking about race yeah so let me ask you a different question as a journalist and commentator you rely very much on your freedom of speech to be able to express your ideas and be frank and 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 challenge people so in your view, is society shifting on the value of freedom of speech? There is an active debate going on now about Ill- illiberal democracies, whether free speech is in jeopardy, the right to offend. Uh, where do you see that debate? And are we moving in a good direction or a bad direction? Um, I think I'm going to separate out the debate with the reality of what's happening, because I think those are two quite different things. You know, I think in terms of our ability to kind of exercise our freedom of speech, I think that's actually improved over the past couple of decades. I think for all of its ills, for all of its flaws, I think social media has been a wonderful thing for that. And I think there are far fewer gatekeepers as a result. You know, everyone essentially via social media has their own mini media channel where it wasn't possible to kind of express your views to the world without writing an op-ed and, you know, broadsheet paper a couple of decades ago. Now you can just get on social media and tweet. And we've seen lots of movements, uh, whether it was the kind of Black Lives Matter um, movement last year or the kind of Arab Spring a couple of years ago. We've seen a lot of things that have been enabled and facilitated by social media and the kind of access that affords a lot of people. So people who were kind of, you know, previously disempowered now have a lot more power. And I think that's a really good thing. I actually, (laughs) I don't feel that worried about, discussions about cancel culture because I think the people who are worried about it are a very small number of people who are used to acting and speaking with impunity and weren't used to getting pushed back on that and are now doing you know 
before you could have written a really toxic op-ed, you know, you know, railing against immigrants and the opportunity for people to kind of push back on that publicly was, was very slim. Now you can have hundreds of thousands of people tweeting on social media. I think something that I found really interesting last summer was the, um, the New York Times published an op-ed uh, in, in the aftermath of the Black Lives Matter protests where a Republican senator was calling for the army to essentially clamp down aggressively on protesters. And it was so anti-democratic and that the uproar was such both on social media and within the New York Times, the person who signed off on that op-ed eventually was forced to resign. You know, and, and I think, again, people worry. I don't see that as cancer culture. I see that as the difference between 20 years ago that Senator could have written that piece and there wouldn't really have been very many opportunities to push back on it and for people to express their views and their discontent about it to now people actually having that power. Um, and also I very rarely see people who have been cancelled per se, you know, all these people who complain about the perils of being cancelled, they are still out there writing, you know, opinion columns and doing absolutely fine as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I don't really see cancel culture as an issue. I do worry um, though that politicians, you know, kind of focusing back on the UK, are kind of capitalising on these fears and capitalising on this kind of the woke brigade kind of propaganda that they're spreading to push through um, or even even capitalising on sort of tragic events. So obviously uh, the MP, the Conservative MP, Sir David Amos, was really tragically murdered last week. And almost immediately there are now discussions about a David's law being passed to... Uh, unmask social media users and to kind of prevent online anonymity, which is really important for lots of reasons that people can remain anonymous online. I know some people do abuse it, but I think it's a really important principle. And that to me seems pretty authoritarian. So I think what I worry more about is that politicians are kind of using this culture war and stoking these flames in order to actually enact really quite damaging laws and legislation that would actually then curtail freedom of speech. So that's actually what I'm worried about, not the current situation, which I think is broadly good, but what happens next. Mm. So let's turn to your new book, We Need to Talk About Money, which explores the impact of money and people's aversion to discussing money. It's a particularly English thing, I think, as well. <laughs> why do you think money is such a taboo? And why, you know, even though that it touches every aspect of our lives, why do you argue that talking about money is very important? Yeah, I think in all the research that I did and just anecdotally have observed in researching my book, the Brits definitely kind of come out worse in terms of reluctance to talk about money openly. And it, just kind of looking at the historical background of that, a lot of that is actually down in the UK and, and within Britain to the Victorians. You know, in the Victorian era, talking about money and being seen to kind of be openly, to openly desire money was seen as very gauche or impolite. You know, the mm -hmm. culture of manners that the Victorians enshrined really framed being openly interested in money as very vulgar and loose. And that has definitely passed down um, over the generations. So when you, when you kind of look at other cultures, there isn't quite, I mean, it's, it's taboo, I think, globally, but when you look at other cultures, they're definitely more open, more transparent and feel less awkward about it. Um, but the reason, you know, overall that I think people feel awkward talking about money is because it, within contemporary society, money tends to be tied up with notions of moral value. So as a society, we tend to venerate the rich and demonise the poor. So being wealthy is seen as a sign of moral virtue. It means you're hardworking, it means you're intelligent, it means you're ambitious. Um, while people who don't have money are kind of portrayed, especially by politicians and um, by the media, as, you know, in circumstances of their own making and often not taking into account the various structural factors that determine who does or doesn't have money. And so people who are poor are seen as feckless and lazy and, and stupid and all of these things. And I think even those of us who consider ourselves socially progressive can't help but absorb those messages. And for that reason, you know, being poor or exposing that you are poor or exposing that you're rich, it, it tends to be, um, we tend to attach a sense of moral value to the number at the bottom of someone's bank account and it invites judgment. And really, like, who, who wants to be judged? I don't, you probably don't either. So I think that explains why we find it so difficult to talk about money openly, even with, you know, people we are close to, even with loved ones and people in our life. But 
in terms of why I think it's so important, I know that personally for me, even the process of writing this book, which forced me to kind of really interrogate some of my own anxieties and vulnerabilities and fears around money and, and I suppose some of my own snobberies as well. It was really transformative um, for my relationship with money. And, you know, because also becoming self-employed five or six years ago, mm. the nature of how I work now means that I have to talk about money a lot within professional situations, whereas most people negotiate a pay rise, you know, every once a year, every two years, I'm having constant conversations about money and, and what I'm being paid. And so it's kind of made me feel a lot more comfortable about it and makes me feel less anxious and so I think just kind of based on my own experiences I think that's something that's widely applicable and so it's just something that I wanted to to urge people to do and and when I think about friends in my life and the relief they feel when they start having those money conversations whether with me or with the people in their life they always report back that it's a good thing and that it's helped them emotionally and psychologically. Okay well let me turn to a different theme, which is around inclusion and pay gaps. So we have an initiative at the LSE called the LSE Inclusion Initiative, which is doing research on many of the themes in your book around the persistence of gender and racial gaps in recruitment and in pay. It's being led by a colleague here called uh, Dr. Grace Lorden. And in a recent report that just came out about a month ago, she talks about the unique difficulty that Black women report uh, in being themselves at the workplace and also in the terms of their employment and often facing the largest pay gaps of any workers at all. Can you tell us a little bit about what you think of that research and and what can be done to try and pursue change in that area? Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's it's quite widely um, understood and there's been a lot of research. I, I write about this in my book as well, is that all things being equal, Black women um, tend to suffer from the widest kind of pay gaps you know there's the kind of combination of race and gender and, and mm. it compounds means that we tend to be within the workforce the lowest paid um, demographic and I mean I think first of all it's important that that information is out there and is circulated I think one of the things I try to do with my book is help people understand how the intersection of race and gender so what's commonly referred to as intersectionality um affects your experience of the world and I think all too often when we're talking about diversity when we're talking about marginalization a lot of institutions individuals are slightly stuck in the past and they tend to treat race as one subject as one problem and gender discrimination as another and I think it's really important to understand how those two you know my experience of the workplace is different from that of a white woman and it's also different from that of a black man and as you say Black women kind of most often report having to change the way they behave at work, which is, you know, essentially called code switch. And I found myself having to do a lot of that when I was working within formal employment, just trying to fit in with the prevailing culture. And I found that, again, by virtue of being both female and black in spaces that were often dominated by white men, I was kind of at a double disadvantage. Um, so I think it's uh, that sort of data, that being out there and, and more people understanding the idea of intersectionality and not you know, asking people to kind of split their identity up. It's something that I often kind of see happen is when when people kind of talk about these findings, they say women and people of colour. And I always want to say, you realise that <laughs> there are women who are both. You, know, there, you can be both. There are women who are also people of colour. So I think that just kind of shows how that language and that lack of understanding can, can present a barrier for, for women like me. Let me ask you about another aspect of kind of intersectionality. You've written about race, but and you've also written about class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some thinkers and activists say that these subjects are fundamentally intertwined and can only be understood in relation to each other's. Others have said that actually racial issues are different and should be looked at distinct from class. Where do you stand on that issue? Well, I'd say I definitely think the former. It's about intersectionality. I think you can't look at someone's identity and expect them to divide up the, the various aspects. Somebody might be middle class and so benefit from certain advantages that come come with that socioeconomic status. And they might also be black. And, and in fact, that is actually my identity. So I would say that I am middle class, but I'm also black. And so you have to look at the sum total of people's identity. But also when you look at the, again, the kind of the statistics, 
certainly in the UK and, and often in the US, which is where I've, I've also kind of looked at and writing my book, certainly in the UK, class and race divisions tend to go hand in hand. So you tend to find more people who are at the bottom of the kind of class hierarchy, if you want to call it that, they tend to be more people of colour. And that there are all sorts of historical reasons for that. It's about at what point in the in history, in recent history, they emigrated to this country, whether or not they've had the opportunity to build up generational wealth. So I think it would be really mistaken to try and divide those two um, factors when they often go hand in hand. Again, I think it's something that a lot of, you know, conservative media tries to do and, and tries to weaponize it. You know, there's this focus on, for instance, white, white, white working class boys without understanding that there are other issues that contribute to, I guess, their, I don't want to say underachievement, but, you know, I guess if you kind of look at it as um, relative to, to an average, that, that is what it is. Um, that there tends to be a focus purely on the fact that they're white as opposed to the fact that, well, actually, they're also working class. And let's look at how what these obstacles are there and what the obstacles that black working class and white working class boys might share beyond, you know, the fact that they are of different races. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, the, the wonderful Amartya Sen often says that uh, all of us carry multiple identities, uh, you know, race, religion, color, gender, food preferences, sporting passions, you know, and all of those identities make up an individual and uh, kind of, all of these attempts to categorize people in little itsy bitsy narrow categories are always flawed in that sense because we're all a lot more complicated and multifaceted than that. Yeah, I, I think it just requires nuance. And in some ways, I understand the challenges that presents it. And I think the kind of analysis I'm bringing to it and what I talk about in my book is a lot more qualitative. And I can understand that if you're looking at it from a quantitative point of view and you're kind of trying to separate and categorize people, right. there is that temptation to say, working class, black, white, and, and, and to not look at the overlaps. But I think that is why you need things like cultural commentary. You need more qualitative analysis to kind of help colour in that picture. Yeah. So let me turn to the first question we've got, which is from a student here at the LSE named Manny. Uh, he's from New York. And he asks, how have you built up confidence to speak freely and openly? Or is there a framework you go through before you decide whether or not to say something. As a black student, I find it hard checking people on things when they say, keeping in mind I'm also in a very international and cultural, different cultural context. Mm. So yeah, how do you decide when to speak out? And that's that's a really good question. I wish I could say that there, there was a framework, um, but I tend to be slightly more um, impulsive than that. And, and it is very much my intuition. Um, I think I made a decision a while ago that I wasn't going to internalize the discomfort of having to deal with people's inappropriate comments. And, you know, I spent a lot of my life, I went to a majority, I went to majority white education institutions full stop. And then I went to work in white, I still work in white dominated spaces. And so I've had to turn a blind eye to a lot of, you know, inappropriate comments and and microaggressions. And I think in the past couple of years, I just got sick of it. And and I really made a promise to myself that it was not my discomfort to bear and that I was going to kind of bounce that back because it was almost just kind of a sense of, of justice. I was like, this is really unfair that as well as having to undergo these, you know, microaggressions, having to endure them, I also then have to do the emotional labor and the mental work of, of trying to make everyone else around me feel okay. Um, So I would say it was just a kind of t- tipping point. It was just kind of a critical point where I decided that enough was enough. I know that's not a particularly helpful question, but it was less of an intellectual decision and more of an emotional one and just and just feeling really fed up with it. Maybe just a follow-on question for me. Uh, you know, one of the, it's hard to be alert all the time and call things out on the spot. And I think all of us have experienced being in a situation, not being fleet of foot enough to, do it and then afterwards regret you say I should have said this and I should have said that and I could have rebutted that in this way um what about whether the calling out happens by the person who's on the receiving end of uh, unwelcome behavior or comment versus having a, an ally do it and do you have any thoughts on that because we've had a bit of a debate here at the LSE about how allies doing the calling out 
is actually really helpful because it removes the emotional burden from the person who's been on the receiving end. But it'd be interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is great in principle. Um, I would say, and this is a question I remember when I was kind of in the thick of, of promoting whites last November, I did have this question you know, asked of me, you know, have you had a lot of kind of white allies kind of putting themselves on the line and calling things out? I don't know whether it's a lack of understanding whether things have really drastically changed in the past year, but I do not rely on uh, white people to, to do that for me. I think it's great if it can happen. And I think hopefully we'll see more of that. But my personal experience is that I've had to learn to do that myself. But I'm glad you kind of brought up that feeling of, um, you know, going home and, and wishing you'd you'd said X, Y, Z. I think the French have uh, have a phrase for this breed escaliers, you know, when you kind of come up with a perfect comeback, but it's, it's too late. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I've, I've experienced. I think, again, I, I'm sort of just more prepared now than, than I was, you know, a couple of years ago. And again, because I've kind of made this vow to myself to... Um, to not kind of internalise the discomfort. It means that the second I feel that prickle of discomfort, I do just kind of blurt out what I'm thinking and why I've been made uncomfortable. And these are things, emotions that I've thought about for years and years and years, so they are pretty fully formed by the time they come out, so I don't worry about speaking impulsively. But I think for me, the solution has been to, and it might not work for everyone, but is to just kind of act in the moment. And, and the second you feel that prickle of discomfort is to vocalise it and to externalise it. And I'm sure that, you know, many of whoever's speaking, that you have <laughs> the intellect to then kind of back up and explain why something's made you feel uncomfortable. But it is to kind of, this is probably the worst advice, but to speak first and then, <laughs> and then to kind of think about it later. It's very much a split second decision. Here's a question from Isla who says, what actions need to be taken or happening to bring real change in view of the racism against black people? Um, question. <laughs> this is... It's a question that I'm sometimes hesitant to answer because I I often feel that the onus is put on black people to kind of solve the issue of racism. And so, again, it kind of becomes that double burden, burden. as well as having to endure racism, you are then tasked with um, figuring out a solution to it. Um, but what I would say is that it depends on your kind of your own personal sphere of influence and, and what you, you know, what's what position in life you occupy but I think it involves as I said only kind of putting your neck on the line and, and making some sacrifice so if for example you work in an institution and you know that there are people of colour who are being underpaid or, or, or mistreated it's not enough for you to just be an ally in private and to kind of grouse about it and, and to be supportive it's up to you to then perhaps even risk your job by going to management and saying these are issues that I've spotted like I think one of the issues is that I think there is a lot of white empathy um, and I think that that is a good thing, but it often, again, is limited to just that. So it's about what, I, I don't know, you know, the specific circumstances of this person's life who's asked this question, but it is kind of about looking at your own life and thinking, where are the instances in which I can make specific change? How can I support? How can I advocate for, you know, more equal treatment whether it's in my social circle whether it's at work whether it's you know amongst my, my family it's not enough to just kind of feel uncomfortable when old uncle albert makes a slightly off color comment at christmas you then actually have to kind of push him on it and, and call him out on it so i think it is I, I don't personally feel that it is that hard to figure out uh what to do about specific instances of racism or, or discrimination. I think for me, the issue is often about there not being sufficient will or not being sufficient urgency. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that is a theme of what you've said today is that, you know, the, the past couple of years has seen a, a huge increase in awareness uh, and debate, but not enough of an increase in... Yeah, and I, I often find those conversations like, like racism is actually not particularly complicated. It's about treating people differently because of their the color of their skin or, or their cultural background. Um, and I think there is a sort of tendency to kind of over intellectualize or overthink the potential solutions to it. But it is fundamentally about striving for equality. So how can you make things more equal within your own life? I don't, there isn't a magic solution. There isn't some sort of 
magic cure that I can come up with and often be like, oh, I haven't thought of that. Everything has been discussed. <laughs> Every possible solution has been discussed. It's now actually about implementing it. Okay. Another question uh, from the audience. Can you say more about class differentiation among white people in regard to the social construct of race? As Franz Fanon has said, racism created race, not vice versa. Mm. State violence exists in both black and white societies. The BLM protests in Lagos were violently suppressed. The British cabinet are currently trying to prevent any prosecutions of murders of many innocent civilians in Ulster by security forces who I presume are white is the argument. Is not the situation very complex, not a binary black versus white? I think that's a good uh, point in terms of if we kind of look historically, for instance, something I talk about in, in whites is that some white people, people who we now kind of think of as white, so white Irish people or uh, Italians, for instance, they haven't always been racialized as white. So if you kind of look, especially within America within the 20th century, Irish people, Italian mm. people, Jewish people were all racialized as other and often suffered um, the same kind of discrimination that, that black people also suffered from. So and that, there were instances where class solidarity, because often it was kind of working class Irish or Italian or Jewish people who kind of suffered this discrimination. And there were instances, particularly within the 60s and 70s, where there were coalitions of people that were that kind of overcame race barriers and the coalitions were built on the basis of class. So I think it's definitely important to recognise that there can be solidarity on a kind of class level. But what I don't, what I think is... Um, important to remember that whilst it's possible to transcend or ascend race and class very important distinction um and to move up or down the class barrier it's not really possible in the same way for especially for people who kind of have darker skin tones so whilst you can i don't want to say pretend to be another class but there is more fluidity it's possible to kind of break out of the um, marginalization that you suffer as a result of class but that isn't really possible in the same way for race. So I do think it's important not to equate those two types of discrimination. Whilst they obviously often go hand in hand and we can kind of find solidarity across um, race by kind of looking, focusing on class. I do think essentially just the kind of physical attributes and, and the way that racism uh, is kind of levied against people primarily became based on skin color and, and kind of them being perceived as being non-white. That makes it very hard to treat those two types of marginalization and discrimination as being one and the same. Okay. That question was from uh, Liam Kelly. So thank you, Liam. I've got another question, uh, which is anonymous. You've mentioned that you've used qualitative research in your work. Many organizations are slow to move on race-based initiatives because of the lack of data. How would you say we can have a balance of evidence and action? Um, so just to clarify, the research, I was kind of talking about qualitative analysis as opposed to research. I have relied um, more heavily on quantitative analysis. Um, but in terms of, sorry, could you just repeat that second, the second part of the question? So the question is, uh, many organizations are slow to move unless yeah. they've got data. So how do you get the right balance between having data and actually taking action? Do we need, I think the basic question is, do you need to have all the data before you make, you act or, or not? I mean, I think it can be helpful in informing specific, um, the kind of, the specific types of action that you take. So for instance, you might want quantitative data that identifies which, you know, people, people from which racial backgrounds are having a, a difficult time within your institution being more discriminated against. I think that's really um, important but you know one of the reasons I wrote my book the way I did which is where it combines personal memoir and my personal experiences and anecdotes and this is we need to talk about money with the kind of hard data is that you kind of need both to substantiate and to support the other and so I think it's important to to also kind of listen to people's personal experiences there are things that data can't show up it can also people's personal experiences can also be more um, can guide you in terms of potential solutions. I, I, I don't think lacking data, if you can, if you can have qualitative um, data and qualitative research, I don't think you then therefore need to wait until you also kind of have the quantitative and stats and, and the data to also back that up. If you don't have one type of data, then rely on another. If you don't have the stats about, you know, 
how people of different skin, you know, of different racial backgrounds are performing within your institution, then do a survey, have more of a qualitative approach to things. I, I think it, it can be tempting, but then that just kind of stimmies action and people are always kind of waiting for the, the next thing that they need before they can take action. So I think it's just about using what you've got. I think conversation can be as useful in helping identify problems as research and data is because often there, there are gaps in the research and data. Often, I, you know, when I was kind of looking through uh, the ONS statistics for a lot of my books, something that I found really difficult was that often non-white people were always aggregated. So if I wanted to find data that specifically pertained to Black Africans or Black Caribbeans, I couldn't find it because it just said, here's the data for white people. And often that was kind of broken down into white Irish or whatever. And then it was just, here's the data for people of colour. So yeah. there are always going to be difficulties in finding the right data. It's expensive to, to carry out these sorts of studies. So there are, there are shortcuts. I think you kind of just have to start somewhere. Yeah. And it's gotten more complicated as there are more mixed race families and exactly. definitions exactly. of race and ethnicity have gotten ever, ever more complex. Yeah. So the next question is from Nevo Burl, who asks, are diversity consultants truly allowed to perform their roles of diversity and inclusion? Um, <laughs> there is a reason I don't do diversity consulting work, um, which is something that I am asked to do fairly regularly. Um, more so since I published Whites and obviously I'm somebody who's quite outspoken on race and diversity. Um, I think with the best, I, I think the, I find it personally not satisfying to present options and to lay out solutions and to only kind of, to be in these companies as an outsider and so to not be part of the framework. So often consultants are hired in, but they kind of work on a project on project off basis. And so they kind of prevent these, present these findings, present potential solutions, but they don't necessarily have the ability to um, hold these companies accountable. And then they're kind of off to the next and whether or not these solutions are actually implemented and implemented properly is kind of up to the companies. And so I think it's, I think, you know, when I kind of think about publishing, for instance, and I've been having conversations about how publishing can become more diverse, they need to be actually kind of allocated roles who then potentially work with diversity consultants who obviously will be kind of skilled and, and, and much more experienced in these areas. But companies also need to have someone who's kind of going to follow this process through, someone who can kind of check back in in six months and a year and say, how are we tracking? How have we performed? I think the concept of diversity consulting is not a bad one but I think the problem is that a lot of companies kind of throw money at it in the short term they think okay we've kind of ticked this box we had xy swishy company come in and tell us what to do this is kind of going to go on our diversity report for the year of things that we've tried to do but then there is no follow-up there's no accountability there's no one specific person assigned to make sure that things are implemented it's often kind of tacked on to people who already have jobs, existing jobs, it's kind of tapped on as an additional responsibility. So there isn't the kind of resource given to that issue that there should be. That is what I find tends to be the issue with a lot of companies. And it's why I personally don't take on that sort of work because I just personally find it quite um, frustrating. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things we're trying to do at LSE with the Inclusion Initiative is try and actually measure the impact of some of these corporate diversity initiatives. So, for example, many, many companies do unconscious bias training. Mm. Actually, the evidence seems to be that that has no impact whatsoever. But as you say, they've ticked the box and then life goes on. Um, and so by providing rigorous data on which diversity initiatives actually have a real world impact, it might actually increase the likelihood that this stuff actually changes things we'll see yeah and I, I think a lot of companies aren't willing to admit that it actually takes a much more comprehensive kind of restructuring mm. of the way companies operate like it's you can pay x amount and send everyone in senior management on on an unconscious bias training workshop but you should be looking at how people are sent to senior management and how you recruit is there you know a a degree requirement for a lot of jobs which I, I know I'm speaking to, to students but I, I don't think that needs to be an entry-level requirement for a lot of jobs certainly a lot of the jobs that I did I don't think that was particularly necessary and that tends to be associated not just with race but also with class in terms of who is able to access these things so I think it's really about companies really kind of putting the work in and looking at a lot bigger picture than just kind of having these add-ons like a workshop or a training which I don't know how effective those things are. 
Okay. So the next one is um, you spoke about positive action and redressing the balance of white male privilege. How can universities such as LSE tackle this? What privilege and power might people need to give up? Uh, Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, from sort of a student point of view, I'm just trying to think whether from a student point of view or from kind of an institutional point of view. Can I come back to that? I'm going to have a think about that. Yeah, I mean, I might be able to, I might, be, I, might, I might answer some of it, which is obviously, you know, we've, um, we have a sort of race equity framework at the LSE. In fact, I'm chairing a meeting of it next week, and it's sort of a broad representation with real accountability by senior people in the school. But it's, it has to be comprehensive, as you said, Otega. So it includes how we do our research, who we hire, what's in our curriculum, you know, you have to look at all of those things if you're going to really make progress. Um, we do very well on student recruitment. Uh, in fact, the majority of our students are non-white, uh, but that's because we're so international and we've got students from all over the world. So, so we do well there. We do less well on class. So we have racially very diverse, but less well on class um, in the student population. In faculty, our older faculty tend to be whiter. Our new recruits much more diverse and so we're trying to you know make progress on that but I think uh, I think the answer to that question is you have to work on all fronts uh, there's no there's no silver bullet here yeah I think you're, you're probably in a better position to answer that question than <laughs> it's not really fair to ask you yeah. I to take that one um, let me turn to the next one there which I think is for you which is um, race and discussions during Black History Month are often framed solely in relation to discrimination. What aspects of Black culture bring you joy? Oh, that's a lovely question. Um, (laughs) Music, um, very much so. And actually, I want to say social media and Black Twitter. Like I, you know, it's obviously Black Twitter is this kind of like nebulous term, but it also is is quite concrete. Um, I get, I learn a lot from following certain kind of thought leaders within uh, kind of black community and just from seeing these conversations unfold online. I spend a lot of time on Twitter as a kind of culture journalist and a cultural observer. So I find the memes very funny. I think black culture is is often black cool. I think a lot of, you know, companies and, and brands often not, not in a good way, but kind of observe and take trends and, and things that have come up through Black Twitter to then inform how they market and brand themselves. But actually seeing those sorts of interactions at their source is, for me, just like a source of endless joy. So probably music and and, and Black Twitter, if I can say that. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, and here's another one in a similar theme. What book had the biggest impact on you and why? Oh, this is a really, gosh, I, I can read so many books. Which book had a, the biggest impact on me? I don't know if I could identify a specific book because I do just kind of like her work in general. And I, I, I've spoken previously about Jumanda Ngozi Adichie, but I, mm. I really enjoy her writing because she's clearly somebody who is just enormously intelligent and enormously articulate and erudite and, and can express things. But I love the fact that despite that huge intellect, she doesn't, or at least in my view, doesn't feel the need to kind of intellectually show both. And something that I really aspire to with my work and in terms of how I wrote Whites and how I wrote We Need to Talk About Money was while there might be a lot of research and academia that kind of goes into it and underpins it, I was reading some very dense books. <laughs> Felt like I was doing another degree, actually. Um, that I think it's really important to present information um, accessibly and that's something that I really aspire to I don't want people I want people to be challenged certainly and to be introduced to new ideas but I don't want people to feel intimidated by my writing or to feel that it's too dense to the point where they can't really understand it um it's really you know I'm a communicator I'm a storyteller and I want to bring as many people kind of under the umbrella as possible so that's probably not so much a book but a writer who's had a big impact on me Okay, we take one more and then I'll close with a final question for me. This question is uh, from Fergus Dree in, in, uh, at the LSE, who's a staff member at LSE. He says, thanks for a really thought-provoking talk. Out of interest, would you say that the authoritarian implications of David's law outweigh the benefits of being able to unmask and prosecute social media users who proliferate racism, misogyny, and other forms of abuse? And he uh, notes that he is a computer person. He's an IT, he works in one of our IT systems uh, at the LSE. 
So what's the trade-off in, in terms of anonymity and I, I think their outcome? I worry that we're looking at the wrong thing because, and I, you know, this even the discussion of this law is kind of only in its infancy. I think it was kind of first reported yesterday or it's really evolving. But I have to wonder why the focus is on unmasking people as opposed to putting more pressure on these social media giants to do better at, you know, policing, kicking people off these platforms. This is a conversation that has been had for years Mm. now, probably, you know, quite early on in Twitter's history, certainly, but it's, these social media platforms don't do enough to police, um, I hate using that word, but to to stamp stamp out, I guess, um, discrimination and abuse and, and all this kind of online vitriol. And yet the solution that our politicians and that our government seems to be proposing is to clamp down on anonymity as opposed to just what, you know, Twitter needs more users, they want more users. So instead of kicking these people off, that that's the kind of last thing they want. So I feel like it's a, we're being misdirected in mm. thinking, I mean, to be honest, we're being misdirected in thinking that online anonymity is a solution to prevent further instances like what happened with Sir David Amos, like what happened with Joe Cox, where as far as I know, certainly with Sir David Amos, I, I'm not sure that a social media link has even been established. Mm. It's just the fact that obviously the target was an MP and, and MPs also do suffer from a lot of um, online abuse. There's, I feel like it's a slightly opportunistic suggestion. Um, but what I would like to see is more regulation of the social media companies themselves and mandating them to do more to kind of clamp down mm. on abusive accounts. They don't need to be unmasked. They just need to be gotten rid of. Um, so that's kind of, and, and these companies also have the information. Something that I noticed recently is now when you block an account on Instagram, you can also block other accounts that this account may have created. So they definitely have the back end data but they're not willing to use it. And I think Instagram is slightly better on that front than Twitter in terms of regulating abuse. So I don't think, you know, anonymity online can be really important for some people. If you think about kind of like, I don't know, an example of like a young gay teen somewhere online who's fine in their community but doesn't necessarily want to come out and, and, and be exposed, it's really important that people are still able to find their communities, are still able to, you know, express political dissent and do so anonymously. I think that's really really important block you know we can have that at the same time as clamping down the abuse but I think the onus is on tech companies to actually do that I think I can squeeze in one more from Alan Green who's a UCL alumni in Liverpool and the question is are you concerned that the black agenda of BLM 12 months ago is currently being colonized and diluted by a more recent focus on white allyship yes (laughs) That is what my essay writes is essentially about. Um, and I, again, I wrote that sort of July, August last year, so very soon after everything had emerged. And I was already seeing it happen then within a month, two months, three months of, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests of last summer. Um, and as I say, I think it's happening more and more. I mentioned earlier this kind of Google ad, which is focusing on, allyship of, of, of different types but obviously race was part of it and I just thought why is all this money being spent to make an advert that is essentially just marketing Google um, as opposed to perhaps channeling that money and those resources into I don't know whether it's good causes or charities or funds or even in terms of restructuring the way Google operates um, so yeah I absolutely feel that it's being diluted and colonized as a conversation that I have constantly with uh my kind of black friends, especially those of us working in media and, and kind of more public spaces. Um, I don't necessarily have a solution for that, but mm. to whoever asked that question, I think you've, you've definitely spotted something that, that's happening. Okay, very good. Um, take just a final question from me. We are, uh, our theme for Black History Month at LSE this year is three, 365 days a year, not just Black History Month. What would you recommend for people to do throughout the year that would uh, remind them of the importance and power of Black history throughout the year? Any suggestions? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think for me, Black History Month is always a bit of a tricky thing because I don't want discussions of Black history um, to, not that they are confined to one month, but I think I find, I sometimes worry that it allows whether it's companies or institutions kind of off the hook 
other 11 months of the year because they kind of do their big, you know, push. And I've noticed this more in kind of media, they kind of do their big push and they have these initiatives and then things are very quiet the rest of the year. So I think for me, it's just about consistency, whether it's, you know, setting as an institution, whether it's setting certain targets that you're going to enact for the other 11 months of the year, taking this month to do that, to make a game plan for the rest of the year. And this Black History Month is then helpful in the sense that it kind of gives you that push and, and, and kind of spotlights Black history. But the, the month for me <laughs> is, is where I kind of struggle. And so we should be thinking about Black history all year round. We should be thinking about diversity, representation and discrimination all year round. So I hope that maybe Black History Month can become a sort of, I don't know, I love planning. I love making lists. Black History Month can kind of become more of an agenda setting month and saying this is what we're going to do for the rest of the year. And then you kind of, maybe October is the year that companies and individuals use to kind of look at their accountability goals and see, see how they've been doing. Okay, very good, very good. A, a marker and an agenda setting time yes, for exactly. things you do all year round. That sounds good to me. Uh, very good. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, for helping us to celebrate Black History Month, for marking this and helping us set an agenda for work that we're going to do all year round and for issues that we're going to be discussing and debating all the time. Thank you to the audience for joining us. And uh, happy Black History Month and happy Black History Year. Uh, and Otega, thank you again for, <laughs> thank uh, you. for a really interesting conversation.